Speaking of the definition of hypocrisy, there we go. Um, but that's what we're going to let. So let's just start with that, the definition of hypocrisy. Paul shows us what hypocrisy is through somewhat of a case study of the Jews he is addressing. So it's kind of like he's teaching the Jews and he's using them as their own bad example. It's like, you know, so he's using their lives, their expectations, their, their postures as a case study to teach um, to teach what hypocrisy is. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page as we're looking at verses 17 through 22 here, some of the background of these Jews that Paul was teaching, again, kind of in the tradition, it was an oral tradition uh, that they were possessors of the law, the covenant, the law of Moses had been delivered to the Jews and they were the, they were the, they were the keepers of the covenant. They were meant to be the people of covenant that, you know, the uh, they, were, they were God's people and that he was his and that through them and their blessing, they would be a blessing to all the nations. And so they, they held that. And so they were used to talking about the law a lot. They would go and sit in the temple and they would just hear teachers, the Pharisees, they would just teach and they would talk a lot. They would hear a lot and, and just a lot, like just kind of the idea of like they just talked about what they should be doing and what, you know, what it was. And that was kind of just what Paul's addressing here. And, and so he's, He's saying like, hey, you've got, he's, he's in these first few verses, I, like calling to them kind of to their noble ideas of who they are. And as you look at these first few verses, as you look at verses 17 through 20, this is exactly what the people of, of, of Israel should be embodying. He's not saying these things as if they're negative. He's, he's, he's setting them up, right? They're like, they're like nodding their head. Yeah, heck yeah, we're that. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're keepers of the law. We're instructors of the, we're instructors. We, you know, we bring wisdom to the foolish. We teach the children, you know, we teach them all how to embody the knowledge of truth. You know, we, we've been instructed by the law and we think it's excellent and we stand in approval of what is excellent. And he's, and they're sitting there nodding their head. Yep, that's us. That's us. That's us. He's setting them up, right? As the good teacher does. And then he, and then as he he turns, I mean, it's just like ripping the rug out from underneath him in verse 21. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? He's saying like, you stand up and you proclaim these things all the day long, but are you not instructing yourself? Because what is the point of teaching? There's always meant to be an outcome. But he, you know, he's saying like, hey, you who proclaim these things to be true and you stand in the, in the, in the spot of instruction, are you not instructing yourself? Do you not expect the same outcomes of your lives that you are teaching to others? And so he's calling them out. He's setting them up. And there's an indictment in those verses of 21 through 22 to, to, to bring those to light. Those who teach against adultery, do you commit adultery? What he's saying is that I know some of you are committing adultery. I know some of you are not living out the instruction that you're teaching. Not just not living out, but actually living against it. What he's saying is that although you are the people that possess the law, in your hypocrisy, you show that the law does not possess you. That's what he's calling them out to. So when we think about defining hypocrisy, just kind of in the, in the very practical summary of it, it's an outward pretense masking an inner reality. And so that inner reality manifests either through just the motives of the heart or the hidden sins that we keep in the dark. Hypocrisy is not just about our outward lives contradicting the truth over our lives. It's also about those hidden things. Like I said, the hidden motives that maybe the hidden motives that corrupt, corrupt 
our, our, our good actions, our right, the things that we're told to do, our hidden motives actually disqualify them. So hidden motives as well as the hidden sins that we keep in the dark. So again, we're moving fast and I love it. That is what hypocrisy is. What is hypocrisy for us? What is hypocrisy for the Christ follower today? Let me tell you what it is not. Hypocrisy is not contending with the flesh. Hypocrisy is not the fact that sometimes your devotion and your affection is not totally for God. Hypocrisy is not the fact that that you were tempted and instead of turning to the Lord, you actually maybe succumb to sin and whatever that is, whether it be of the flesh or whether it be coveting of, of things. Again, hypocrisy is not just every time a Christ follower sins because we're all we would all be hypocrites in that manner. And obviously, by the category, we see that there is, there is an expression of being a Christ follower that is not hypocritical. After all, John, the apostle, the disciple, teaches us that if we say we do not sin, we call God a liar. Just to be really clear, to make sure we're in good company, we feel confident in say that, saying that. John, 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this, if we say we have no sin, and by the way, when, when John says we He's talking about we, the people of Christ, we, the church, we, those who profess Christianity and to follow Jesus. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. R.C. Sproul says this, people expect church members to be perfect when the one absolute prerequisite for joining the church is the admission that one is not perfect. Did you get that? Should I read it again? It's up there. People expect church members to be perfect when the one absolute prerequisite for joining the church is the admission that one is not perfect. We would say that because the truest entry into the church, we're not talking about just dabblers, visitors, kind of people kicking the tires. We're talking about those who would say, this is my place, these are my people. That's happened because of the work of Christ in your life, and that is only experienced because of our admonition, our admission of sin and guilt. So the one prerequisite is that we know we are not perfect. And hopefully this is like, Hopefully that's a bit of a lift for you, like giving you permission not to be perfect because I think often we feel like we have to be. So, so it should not surprise any of us to see any Christian sin. With that being said, there is obviously and absolutely a specific sin of hypocrisy Paul is addressing. And, and we get like the very, the very, very obvious cases um, but let's kind of put some flesh on this for us today with just a few examples. This isn't all the examples, but maybe just to kind of give you an idea. Let's just kind of throw out some scenarios of some ways that we could see hypocrisy, like active hypocrisy. Again, not just the, the daily fight of, of our flesh warring against the Holy Spirit in us. So here's a question. Do you claim that you trust God with your future, with all that it is, all that it needs, and then go out and cut corners, or deceive in your work in order to get ahead, or to make a little more, or to make a name for yourself. That would be hypocrisy, not just sin. Do you claim that there's no greater pleasure than knowing God and being in his will, and then go and turn to the pleasures of this world? What would some of those be? It would be like coveting others' lives as you just kind of feast on social media. Like that would be that would actually, if you, again, if it's, if it's pervasive, if it's overtaking, if, it's, if it is, if it is um, this, 
this opposing, you know, kind of, uh, I don't, can't find the word I want, but this opposing existence, again, we would see that to be hypocritical. Or if you claim that God is the greatest pleasure in being in his will, and yet you're just, you're just going out and you're trying to find satisfaction just through the material things and just buying and buying and buying and buying and buying and just having to have the newest. And I, let me just confess to you, like, it is taking so much self-control for me not to sell a kidney and go buy an iPhone X, like I, I or 10 or whatever it's called. Like, I, I want the newest thing always. Like, this is, like, if there's, like, there's a, like, that, that first one comes to me too. Like, I, I in, in my battle of sin and flesh, like, I will often kind of pursue comfort and satisfaction through distraction. So social media is one for me. But again, I, uh, I'm chasing a rabbit right now, and I've done, anyway, um, just reel me back in, guys. Just pray for me, okay? Um, but buying more stuff, like, I want the newest thing always. Like, I want the newest thing. I, I like to have the bells and whistles. I like for it to be shiny. Like, I, and so, but, but when it becomes the source of your satisfaction, when it becomes the thing that, that you lean on, and yet you're out there proclaiming this, this, this pleasure satisfied in God alone, or maybe elevating sexual, sexual pleasures through kind of finding yourselves in hookups all the times. And by the way, friends with benefits is the same as a hookup. Um, or maybe porn or maybe adultery. Like again, let's, let's put the two sides together here, okay? It's the with your mouth you are professing and proclaiming that God, that he is the ultimate satisfier, that in Christ he has given you all the pleasures of the world, but yet you turn to these things. Or maybe lastly, you know, do you find refuge in substances? Of course, in the illicit, the illicit uh, substances and drugs, but also, I mean, alcohol, right? I mean, like, you've heard of Satan here before. Like, drinking is, is in itself, is a, alcohol is a gift from God, believe it or not. Like, it is. We should partake with gratefulness, but drunkenness is always a sin. Um, there are those who, who can drink, those who shouldn't drink, and those who, um, who can't drink. And, and, and you would hear us talk about that, and maybe just since I'm, I don't want to blow past that because that's kind of a big statement, but to say those who can, there's, there's freedom and there's not bondage. You don't have a history of addiction towards that. Uh, maybe you're free to. Um, if you, to say those who can't, maybe you're with someone who has experienced that, that has alcoholism in their family, or maybe um, you know, you're in a situation, I would say in that moment you can't, or those who are shouldn't and then you can't it's hey if you have been addicted or if if um it just take if here's the summary if it serves a role that god is meant to serve in christ if it is your refuge if it's your escape and if it, if it is your courage if it's your comfort then it's elevated beyond where it should be so so we see like if we're proclaiming this greatness of god but yet we go and turn that's actual hypocrisy do you say that God is love and that the world needs his truth and love and then go out and perpetuate some prejudice? Or do you assume some self-righteous post of declaring the sin of everyone else but your own? That's hypocrisy. So maybe there's some flesh on it for today. Maybe that would stir our imaginations to help us see maybe some areas of our life that we actually are contradicting our proclamation of truth in a hypocritical way. That's hypocrisy. This shows that you may know the truth of God, and you may even hold your world to it, but you've not surrendered and found that this very truth holds you. Coming back to what we said with the Jews, they possessed the law but did not allow it to possess them. That's hypocrisy. 
So what is the destructiveness of hypocrisy? When we think about hypocrisy and the effect of it, there should absolutely be this this internal motivation for there to be no hypocritical way in you because God is worthy, because he's holy, because, because of the work that he's done in you and that work is good and all that he is is love. So we should be absolutely motivated to to root out any hypocritical way just in that very personal, internal sense. Our conscience will be and should be chastised when we have hypocritical ways in us. That's God's kindness. This is kindness that leads us to repentance. However, Paul here is pointing us to a way hypocrisy is is externally destructive. Look at Romans 2, 23 and 24. It says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And just a reminder, if you haven't heard it, there's two categories of people in this worldview that they understood. There was Jews and there was everyone else. If you weren't Jewish, if you weren't the people of Israel, if you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. And so as the people of covenant, the people that were, that were not of that were actually given reason to blaspheme God because of their way of life. Paul is echoing all the way back to the people of Israel's rebellion that resulted in them being overtaken and exiled. And that in this, this became the reason that the nations around them could scoff at their God, could deny his sovereign majesty because his people were overtaken. The irony is that it was his hand that gave them to that, but that's a whole other sermon. But that's what we see. He's calling them all the way back to this. He's reminding them of the history. Paul's often referred to um, as the greatest missionary, and we see his heart for those who need Christ, those who need to know the grace God imparted in Christ, those outside of the fellowship that is in him, and we see his urgency for that work in these verses. The Gentiles are being given excuses to blaspheme the name of God because of the hypocrisy evident in their lives. If you recall who we are in Christ, who the church is, we are meant to be the light of the world. We are ambassadors. Our lives are meant to be an apologetic and a hermeneutic to the truth of God, to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. What do I mean when I say apologetic and hermeneutic? Apologetic is the work of defending the faith, defending, giving a defense for the claims of Christ. So our lives are meant to be, to, to be able to be evidence when, when the truth of God in Christ is on trial. So when I say our lives are meant to be an apologetic, that's what I mean. When I say our lives are meant to be in a hermeneutic, hermeneutics is the way in which the the science, the work, the theory of how to interpret Scripture. It is the work of interpreting Scripture rightly to understand it as intended in the Word. And so to say that our lives are meant to be a hermeneutic, your life should be a help for the world to interpret, to understand the truth of God. Blaise Pascal says it this way. He says, make good people want the truth of God to be true and then show them that it is. This this all makes perfect sense if we understand that the foundational call to us, the church, the capital C church, is that we together would not just adopt religious dogma and then demand that others do the same, but that we would actually be the transformed people of God. 
resulting in us following Jesus, following Jesus and living a life worthy of saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. This is, this is our responsibility. This is Paul's urgency. He's saying, the way you're living disqualifies you from that claim. The way you're living disqualifies you from being that, that light, being that ambassador, being the, the, being the, the very uh, picture of the love of God, the work of Christ in this world, the, the, the holding out of grace. Follow me as I follow Jesus. That should be the claim every one of us are, every one of us are able to make. God is working to redeem the entire world and the primary way he intends to accomplish this is through the work of Jesus Christ working through the church. There is no plan B. That's the work that Jesus left we see in John 17 as I am sent, as you sent me, I'm sending them. This is the identity of who we are. Our view of our own hypocrisy must extend beyond our own well-being and our own right-being. It has to extend to be global and eternal. It's kingdom. That's what's at stake. So as we understand hypocrisy and we are moved to a life of offering and as we understand the destructiveness of hypocrisy, it's not just personal, it's also, it's also the kingdom work, it's also the work of God making the reality of his promises known, we should be moved. So what's the remedy of hypocrisy? We're going to read the rest of our verses here. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this is very similar to what Paul was saying about judgment in our section we covered last week, where actual fulfillment of the law matters much more than just our speaking it or venerating it, upholding it, lauding it. He's saying, no, it should result in a life expressing that the truth is of God and worthy of our lives. Circumcision was a symbol for the people of Israel, an outward symbol of the people of Israel, that they were God's covenant people, that, God had, that he had made with them as his set-apart people for his holy purpose. It's meant to be an outward symbol for that. We see in writings of Jewish tradition of the time that circumcision had actually been elevated to this, to this work that secured salvation. And in some of these writings, we see this picture of Abraham sitting at the gates of Gehenna, which was kind of like hell, is, is the place where the wicked went. And he was sitting there to make sure that no circumcised Jews were accidentally sent there. And he would check, and if they were circumcised, he would pluck them out, no, this is not your place. You're, you're, you're redeemed. And so there was this understanding in the tradition of circumcision, this, this, this outward work had been elevated to some saving achievement. The great sin being confronted here in these verses is that the Jewish people had both the substance, the law, the truth of God, as well as the symbol in circumcision, and yet their hearts 
were not God's. Their hearts didn't belong to him. They belonged to themselves in their own accolade, in their own position in the world. They had taken this, this position of promise and made it a position of privilege. Circumcision is formally just like baptism, which is an outward testimony of the inward work Christ has done in us, where we identify and surrender with his death and enjoy in splendor and hope our resurrected lives and his resurrection. Baptism is synonymous, it's the same. It's this outward expression. It doesn't, it's not a saving work in itself, but it's an outward expression. It would be like us leaning on baptism, claiming that it saves us. It would be like us claiming that, that some ordinance is the thing that saves us outside of Christ. There's also many other common outward expressions associated with the church that, that we could refer to here. I mean, maybe just going to church, things that, that we hold up as kind of our, our measure that would, that would redeem us, that would make us worthy, that would save us. So just involvement, right? Going to church, being in small group, again, these seem elementary, but they're, they're things that maybe kind of creep in and kind of claim this space. Or maybe it's this life of serving and that serving your fellow man, serving the least and the lost, that that becomes your means of redemption. Or maybe it's giving, Maybe it's the, 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 the level of your generosity, whether it's of time, whether it's of energy, or whether it's of finances, that that becomes the way in which you see that you're redeemed. It sees that we're turning to some external work. The list could go on. Again, these are great things, just like the beginning of these verses where Paul was, was throwing out what, we, what they were holding to, what the Jews would, would say was right. They're beautiful things, right? We should be involved. We should have an expression of life together. We should give of ourselves, and we should serve the least and the lost, and we should be concerned about the well-being and the, and, and the flourishing of all of creation. But yet, when they become the means of our salvation or redemption, we are running headlong into some kind of hypocrisy. Paul's point is that God transforms the heart, and our motives and our lives are an expression of that. It reminds me of what we said a few weeks ago that in Christ, the work of Christ and in, in, in the commands and the promises should be both the center of our lives as well as the circumference. It is, it is overtaking. To see the beauty of what Paul's calling us to is in verse 28 and 29. Let me repeat that again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so just to make sure we're not disconnecting because we're thinking we're talking about someone else here, as we, as we say the Jew, we're talking about the people of God. And so to understand how we are talking about us, again, those who have confessed Christ, you are the people of God. And so we're speaking this promise to you. It is not just attained through the outward work, but through the internal work of, of being made new in Christ, the new creation, having a heart of stone and being given a heart of flesh. This is, what, this is what it is to be the people of God. It's a matter of the heart. Once again, Paul alludes to the work of Christ accomplished in, in and for us that he is going to unpack through the rest of Romans. So once again, I encourage you throughout the week, as Caleb is doing, <laughs> loop through Romans over and over again, or at least read ahead a little bit. Um, it, it, again, because we're taking it through 
little by little, but it's magnificent the way that we come into the glorious work of Christ and his grace in our lives. So once again, Paul gives us this hint as he's kind of really wanting to expose us to our need, to our need for a redeemer, to our need for a salvation that we cannot attain for ourselves, for a need that we, are, that we have all fallen short of God's righteous standard, even in our best intentions, because we are sinners, we are often corrupt in that manner. So Paul is just once again tipping his hand, giving us hope, making sure that we stay in the game so we can get to the payoff fully. Paul and Paul's hope and my hope today is, is not just to beat up our listeners. Far from it. Paul is not out to make the, the, the Jewish audience that he's teaching feel horrible about themselves. Quite the contrary. Like his motive here, what he wants, what he wants to do is for them to remember who they are as God's covenant people and who they were meant to be to, and that they were meant to bring the covenant to the entire world. He wants to restore the dignity of, of that reality. Just a reminder, the, or maybe to inform you, just even what they were known as the, the Jewish people, to be Jewish, is, it comes from, from Judah, which means praise. Their way of life is meant to be praiseworthy. They were, they were given the, the, the tools and experienced the transforming work of God and, and, and the covering of God that they would be honored and praiseworthy and full of praise themselves and actually result in the nations praising God. This is the dignity of their identity as the chosen people of God. They were the people God gave his law to. They were the people who were in the know. They were the people meant to be the messengers of redemption. The aspect of their lives that is meant to be praiseworthy is the fact that they reveal the character of God when they fulfill the law and all of its precepts and social demands. When they take in the sojourner and the outcast, when they care for the widow and the orphan, when they, when they, when they offer their sacrifices to be cleansed, acknowledging they can't do it themselves, when they, when they give their tithe, again, all these things were meant to point to the reality of a sovereign provider God, a sovereign God who redeems and makes righteous. So this is for us today. My prayer is not to beat us up, but to stir us up. My hope is not to pile on guilt, but rather to move us to a life of joyful obedience to the one who gave us a new name, who brought us from death to life, who redeemed us in his grace and saved us. So I'm going to close just reminding you who you are if you are a Christ follower. And if you are not, I want to present this as a promise and an invitation that is for you because of God's love and His grace given in Christ. Listen to some of the words in Scripture that describe you, sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. light of the world, as we've already said, ambassadors of the Most High God, as we've already said. And I'm going to let Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 give the full picture of what our need was and what was accomplished. It says, and you were dead 
in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's bleak. The dead cannot rouse themselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have an opportunity today. If you have hypocritical ways. Count it kindness that God would confront you in that today and repent, confess, surrender, and allow God to restore you. If you need salvation today, if all of a sudden today you realize the promise and the beauty of the truth that you cannot satisfy the righteous requirement of the law on your own, but in God's great love, he provided that satisfaction in Christ. I, I, I invite you to, con- to repent, believe, and confess that today. We talked about baptism as a testimony, and we, we practice believers' baptism, meaning that we, we do baptism as an evidence, as a testimony. And so, if since you've surrendered your life to Christ, you haven't shared that testimony in baptism and would like to with, with our community, um, would invite you to come and let me know that or one of our other elders. Um, we would love to, shel- to celebrate that celebration with you. The work of Christ is meant to overwhelm your entire life, all of your existence, the center and the circumference. Remember who you are in Christ. You can't just will yourself not to be a hypocrite. It takes knowing the Almighty God, abiding, pursuing, and allowing His fruit of the Spirit to come through your life. So hear the invitation. Hear the promise of who you are and can be in Christ. Hear the freedom that God's pleasure in, that he pleasures in you and it is secured in Christ. When he looks at you, if you've made that confession, he sees the righteousness of his son. He sees, he sees you innocent as if you never sinned because he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. This is not a call to a life of earning. It's a call to a life of offering. So let your yes be yes, your no be no, and let your your yes be all for the glory of God.